I want to welcome you to the uh, second Paul A. Olson seminar for the spring semester, and there'll be two more later on in the, in the semester. I wanted to let you know that these lectures are podcast, and it'll be up on the web on our, our site either tomorrow or no later than Friday. So uh, if you want to listen to this again or tell other people about it, you can uh, just go to the Great Plains site. If you just uh, Google Great Plains Studies, we come up at the top of the list there, so that's a good way to find us, and uh, you'll be able to... Uh, to listen to the seminar a second time. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker. Educated at the University of Cambridge, Guy Reynolds is a professor of English and director of the Cather Project here at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. In addition to Cather, Professor Reynolds' areas of specialty include modernism, American literary history, digital humanities, and post-war fiction. He teaches both undergraduate and graduate level courses and is the general editor of the Willa Cather Scholarly Edition, published by the University of Nebraska Press. The title of his presentation this afternoon is Permanence and Transmission, Willa Cather's Anthropology. Guy? Um, I'm very pleased, of course, that this talk is being recorded, since that means that my parents will have a chance to uh, hear me speak, and perhaps to admit that my not becoming a lawyer or an accountant wasn't a complete disaster after all. Um, Mind you, of course, they will then have to listen to this talk so they might decide that it, it indeed was a disaster and that I might have spent my time doing something more profitable or more socially useful um, during my adult life. Um, the beginning of a presentation is, of course, always a very anxious moment um, for the audience, that is, rather than the person who's speaking. Many of you are thinking he looks as if he might go on forever. He's English. They write those really boring long novels. Um, I do want to reassure you that I'll try to bring the job in on time and under budget. And in fact, I'm not being paid for this. So, man, so no matter how things go, you do have the great experience of getting something for nothing. Um, I've given a handout to uh, most of you, I hope. And if you haven't got one, there are some copies over there. Um, if you do find yourself kind of stuck for something to do, you can doodle on that or um, have a look at some of the interesting lines from Willa Cather that I've given you. Now, the title of this piece is Permanence and Transmission, Willa Cather's Anthropology. And I'll explain later on in the course of the talk what this word anthropology might mean. You can already see that it's some kind of conflation of entropy and anthropology. Uh, and indeed, that is the case. Some of the most powerful recent writing about American culture and history explores what in Catherian terms we can call the other side of the national narrative teasing away at the stories that are often overlooked during the so-called grand narratives of American life and culture. Toni Morrison projected one such reading in Playing in the Dark, the work that suggested that white writing has been haunted by blackness. And this study famously included one of the most powerful arguments that we have about Cather's last novel, Sapphira and the Slave Girl. I want in this talk to talk a little bit about how other such hauntings mark Cather's work and especially a form of literal haunting predicated on the loss of culture. Cather was infamously indifferent to the fate of the Plains Indians, although she was fascinated by Pueblo Indian cultures that left behind tangible artifacts and dwellings that could be seen and felt and meditated on, as the singer Thea Kronborg meditates on, culture, on Pueblo culture's pottery in the Song of the Lark. The nomadic Plains Indians seemed to have left no trace. They had no deep history. They featured in a small number of asides in her work, but little more. 
At the beginning of the 1990s, as the countercultural wars began to move into high gear, critics alighted on these kinds of detail. For Mike Fisher, in what remains one of the most critical accounts of Cather and the Plains Indians cultures, Plains Indian cultures, this made her quite simply an imperialist, and that was the, one of the part of the title of his, his essay on Cather. My Antinia, Fisher wrote, quote, is a story of origins for whites only. A story of origins for whites only. My argument in this talk today will be that Cather's work is um, uh, structured by endings as much as it is by origins and beginnings, and that here perhaps Cather lacks... Have I still got, am I still going? Yeah. Um, that here Cather lacks imperialist triumphalism. For the Plains Indians are there in a way, and their presence can be felt throughout her work. The haunting sense of cultural loss in her work must be linked, perhaps, at some level, to what the philosopher Jonathan Lear, in an, in an important book on the Crow Indians, Radical Hope, has called Cultural Devastation. And I've given you a short bibliography at the end of the quotations so you can find out easily what these works are that I'm referring to. Uh, Lear was, a, um, in many ways, a very traditionally trained philosopher, um, then a Freudian therapist and psychoanalyst, teaches at the University of Chicago, and has recently written a very interesting book which brings together a kind of therapeutic analysis with a quasi-anthropological account of the Crow Indians. And it's an extremely interesting and, I think, um, a remarkably hybrid piece of work. Cather had registered, in some ways, the hard facts of life on the prairies, as witnessed in the recent vanishing of the Plains Indians, that this was a place of vanishings and that her own culture, then coming into being, might simply go the same way. Cather's 1923 essay, which I've given you a little bit from, published in The The Nation in a series of, of, of articles about different states, was called Nebraska, the end of the first cycle. And it does indeed announce the end of the pioneers. Throughout her work, we find many suggestions that European American, the American European or the European American world she'd grown up in might simply face a devastation as it was fought, succeeded by lesser forms of culture for Cather, the movies, or gaudy fiction, as she called it, or by literal vanishing. As Cather writes, the splendid story of the pioneers is finished and no new story worthy to take its place has yet begun. And this is the quotation that you can find, number four on the back of your sheet. In Nebraska, as in so many other states, we must face the fact that the splendid story of the pioneers is finished and that no new story worthy to take its place has yet begun. The generation now in the driver's seat hates to make anything, wants to live and die in an automobile, scudding past those acres where the old men used to follow the long cornrows up and down. They want to buy everything ready-made, clothes, food, education, music, pleasure. Will the third generation, the full-blooded, joyous one just coming over the hill, will it be fooled? Will it believe that to live easily is to live happily? And in some ways in that quotation, that's just part of this long essay, which is in many ways a Jeremiad uh, raging against uh, the state of modern culture. You can see in some ways the kind of absurdity, if you like, of Cather's conservatism at the the beginning of the 1920s. The idea that we might not want to ride around in cars might seem rather remarkable from the perspective of 2007. Also, the lament about ready-made clothes. They want to buy everything ready-made, clothes. Well, 
again, there are probably very few people in this room who have a tailor or an ability to make their own clothing. You can see that Kada's sense of time passing has backed her into some quite interesting uh, conservationist positions, and I'll talk about that idea later on in this talk. Here, when we think about Kada and time passing, Kada and the Nebraska, the end of the first cycle thesis, the major text is in many ways Lucy Gayhart, 1935, which is a novel steadily stripped of its heroine, its main protagonists, indeed stripped of people, depopulated, in an eerie prefiguring of that demographic reshaping that took place on the plains after Cather's death. The characters Mockford and Sebastian die in, drowning, die in a drowning accident. Lucy herself goes down into the waters. And now, Cather writes, the story was finished. No grandchildren, complete oblivion. And there is a kind of cruelty to that novel, beautiful as it is. I read it after I'd read a number of other Cather novels, and as soon as I saw the title Lucy Gayhart, I knew I was in for trouble. Um, and, of course, Gay Hart, she's dead halfway through the novel, and there is a kind of ruthlessness about the way in which Kada picks off her characters in the book. That this is not only a form of devastation of family and the individual, but also a form of Lear's cultural devastation is amply demonstrated in the orchestration of those final few beautiful pages in the novel. The novel ends with the sealed room, Lucy's room, with a photograph of Sebastian, the music teacher who she loved, and their musical scores on their shelves, a cultural repository, an archaeological site now brought into the heart of Cather's 20th century American world. In an echo of Tom Outland's story, that central narrative in The Professor's House, which I'll discuss later on, um, the character Harry Gordon follows the Cather pattern of looking for an aid memoir, something to establish the permanence of what he has experienced in his memory. And a great deal of Cather's work, of course, as many critics noted right from the very start, is about memory, its compulsions, its practices, um, and the way it intersects with narrative, the way in which narrative has to change in order to take account of memory, the way in which human personality is shaped by memorialization. Jim Burden in My Antonia has his manuscript, writes across the front of it at the beginning, My Antonia. Tom Outland in The Professor's House has the mummified skeleton, Mother Eve. Harry Gordon has the photograph. Like these other Cather males, Harry Gordon is a memory fetishist, and they are highly fetishistic individuals, all of these male characters. He takes the photograph of Sebastian, and you notice the little details in the passage I've given you. It was the only thing he touched. There's a sort of remarkable sense of, of what can be touched, what can be encountered, what has to be preserved. There's a kind of madness about this, uh, as you might see in a minute. Like Tom, he is both a witness to a place of loss and an obsessive who needs to take something from that place in final compensation. Lucy is dead. Harry has taken over the house which the Gayhart family owned. Harry has taken over uh, the house to the extent of working out who will keep the house after he himself has died. So there's this sense of a kind of chain of custodianship or uh, keeping um, of a memory of somebody who is now uh, long gone. Gordon had all the keys, Cather writes. He took off his hat and opened the locked room. The shades were down, but they did not fit very well. And at the south window, streaks of orange sunlight made a glow like a candlelight in the dusky chamber. The closet door was kept open, prevention against moths, and dresses and dressing gowns were hanging in a row. They had better be burned, he supposed. Beside her desk was a bookcase full of books and bound music scores. 
A chest in his private study at the bank would be the best place for those. He might look at them sometime. Her toilet things were laid out on the dresser, and leaning against the mirror in a tarnished silver frame was a photograph of Clement Sebastian with some writing on it in German. This Gordon put in his pocket. It was the only thing he touched. He closed the door softly behind him and locked it. When he came out of the house, the last intense light of the winter day was pouring over the town below him, and the bushy treetops and the church steeples gleamed like copper. After all, he was thinking, this is one of my favorite, favorite lines. After all, he was thinking, he would never get away, he would never go away from Haverford. He had been too much, through too much here ever to quit the place for good. What was a man's hometown anyway, but the place where he had had disappointments and had learned to bear them? Which is a kind of hammer blow of a comment. As he was leaving the Gay Hearts, he paused mechanically on the sidewalk, as he had done so many thousand times, to look at the three light footprints running away. Now, this is, of course, a kind of exquisite piece of writing, and if you read the whole novel, which I would urge you to do, there is a kind of funneling effect at the end as it narrows itself down and the actual sections of the novel become shorter, and the movement of the, the orchestration of the effects becomes more and more uh, poignant and more and more focused on these particular motifs that you're seeing here, the, the keepsake, the memory, the dead girl, and also this uh, detail that was dropped into the narrative earlier on, Lucy's a young girl, skips across drying cement, leaving the footsteps there on the pavement, which will then act as a kind of memorial of her. It's corny. It is corny. But, of course, by the end of the novel, um, you know, a very fine writer can make that corny, sentimental image into something uh, really quite heartbreaking. And I think it is at the end of this novel. Particularly that kind of extraordinary detail that we see as well. Um, he paused mechanically on the sidewalk, as he had done so many thousand times. And then the contrast of the thousand times and the three light footprints. This is a man whose um, gaze and whose kind of commitment to looking at these th three footsteps has become his life. Cather's narratives are haunted by loss and by cultural loss. In recent commentary, notably that of Stephen Trout or Michael North, such loss is linked to the shattering effects of the Great War or a more general crisis of modernism, or a Spenglerian sense of Western demise. This is Cather's wasteland, as it was noted in an important commentary as early as 1949 by Bernard Baum, with a link to Eliot being very explicit. But one might argue that such a sense of loss of cultural devastation had haunted Cather from an earlier stage of her career, before the war, before the heyday of literary modernism. The early story, The Enchanted Bluff, and again we have a, a section from it here, 1909, is Cather's prototype for later narratives about lost cultures. Here, the cliff-dweller settlement whose demise begins when an awful storm washes away the fragile staircase up into the village away up there in the air. This would represent a more specific Americanization of Cather's work, seeing her sense of loss as rooted in region and locale, in those broader patterns of historical memory um, sorry, uh, where am I? Um, those broader pants of historical memory that were with her from an early stage of her career. This is the American cather of Western vanishings, not the Euro-American responding to the crisis of the early 20th century. It is worth stressing, too, how the biographical losses explored in, say, Joel Geyer's television documentary have this collective and cultural counterpart. 
And coming as we do from a highly individualistic and therapeutic culture, we sometimes overlook, I think, this mapping of loss in Cather in terms of a cultural loss, a cultural devastation. My, fo- my focus on cultural endings might seem perverse. After all, Cather was fascinated, as she often said, by energy, by newness, by youth. The pioneer novels, above all, explore migration and the immigrant experiences as forms of cultural newness, and they were celebrated as such by H.L. Mencken and Dorothy Canfield Fisher for exactly these reasons. But the sense of beginnings in Cather is always linked to the sense of endings and the mapping of endings onto the larger patterns of cultural formation and cultural collapse and the haunting that then ensues. This is the last line of the Enchanted Bluff. Bert has been let into the story and thinks of nothing but the Enchanted Bluff, a typically Catherian moment of memory and obsessive memory and, and almost an inability to escape from that memory um, loop. Thus the pervasiveness in her work of disappearances and vanishings, cultural death and loss, the fascination with archaeological sites and objects, the Cliff Dweller City, Panther Canyon, Mother Eve, the shards of pottery found by Thea Kronborg, even Jim Burden's rediscovery of Antonia at the end of the novel, Antonia, has the flavor of an archaeological trip about it as Jim moves backwards in historical time. Do you remember, he travels by train to Hastings. There's a detail about how difficult it is to get a good carriage, good livery, I think is the term that's used, to take him down into Webster County. Finally, he walks up the gravel road, um, a man walking down a gravel road towards an isolated house, as if there really is little progress after the initial homesteading moment. Cultural loss is imminent, imminent, is present within the first two pioneer novels. Even if they are about the making of America and the making of Americans, they contain an anxious undertow that derives from this fear about cultural impermanence. The celebrated opening statements of O Pioneers show us houses unfixed as wandering cattle, as if they were straying off by themselves. None of them had any appearance of permanence, Cather writes. And this is a direct usage of this term, permanence. One January day, 30 years ago, the little town of Hanover, anchored on a windy Nebraska tableland, was trying not to be blown away. A mist of fine snowflakes was curling and eddying about the cluster of low drab buildings huddled on the gray prairie under a gray sky. The dwelling houses were set about haphazard on the tough prairie sod. Some of them looked as if they had been moved in overnight, and others as if they were straying off by themselves, headed straight for the open plain. None of them had any appearance of permanence, and the howling wind blew under them as well as over them. Okay, very important moment. The Pioneer Project might fail. It might be brief-lived, or it might lack in cultural and and historical significance. I've argued elsewhere that Cather's sense of history was cyclical rather than linear, And one can clearly see that this sense of rise and fall, of inevitable decline, had been central to her imagining of the American West from her earliest fictions. What is important about the Nebraska essay is not so much its celebration of the pioneers as its lament for the shortness of their heyday. Very, very few commentators have seen the pioneer era as being as short as it is in Cather's essay, just over one generation, a bare 30 years perhaps. Cather imagines the pioneer heyday as really extraordinarily short, a kind of comma in the long continuum of Western time. In many ways, Cather was a typical modernist, exhibiting that paradoxical fascination with new forms and shapes for her writing, even as she reacted strongly against many forms of modern culture. 
Like D.H. Lawrence, whom she knew well, she interrupted work on Death Comes for the Archbishop in 1926 to spend a good deal of time with him in New York City. And Cather was the kind of person who kept a strict timetable when she was engaged on a project. You were given your time for tea and that was that. Like Lawrence, Cather could be corrosive about contemporary industrial or consumerist culture. In this, again, perhaps archetypal, modernist study of cultural decline, human experience has lost potency. Experience is increasingly mediated through banal forms such as the movies. Urban life means a loss of contact with the natural world. In place of craft, artisanal production, and direct exchange, mass-produced goods circulate through increasingly attenuated networks. Shallow hedonism has replaced real feeling. At some pervasive level, life is no longer authentic. These are the kinds of things I say when I'm in the line at Walmart. These, these complaints became familiar, at the, of course, the moment that romanticism arose in reaction to, and perhaps in combined kind of double helix combination with, industrial capitalism. <clears throat> in Cather's work, in her imagined Mazerland or her primitivist pioneer cultures or her memorializing of lost heroic figures, Antonia or Tom Outland, we can see a reconfiguring of these motifs within the American West. And we can see that the sense of cultural and material loss in fables such as that surrounding the skeleton of Mother Eve in the professor's house articulates a kind of Lou Dobbs-like parable where an authentically indigenously American artifact, literally indigenous, the skeleton of a Pueblo woman, is stolen, God forbid, by a German adventurer and shipped out through Mexico a kind of parable about the evils of consumerist circulation in the global economy. That sounds very complicated, but when you look at the story again, just see how the question of, the, um, of authenticity, of things being rooted, of how things are exchanged, of what belonging might be, um, of how the, the, the central three characters on the maze are Tom and his friends, how there is really a, a story about um, place and keeping things within their place, um, 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 being developed and, and, and it, the, the key point really is the way in which that item or those items are being kind of taken out of this homeland uh, that Cather is, is trying to describe. This dialectic between the energy of youth and beginning on one hand and devastation or vanishing on the other is relatively straightforward to identify. We can recognize its presence in Cather's work through her code language. Youth, youth is an important word for Cather as it was for Joseph Conrad. And you might notice, just as a kind of incidental reflection here, that Joseph Conrad's Youth, a narrative, and two other stories was published in collected form in 1902. And then both of these Conradian words, youth and narrative, become part of Cather's lexicon too. So on one hand, youth, with all of its suggestions about energy and newness and beginnings and so forth. And then, of course, the other cluster of terms in Cather's imagination around memory and recall and aging and death. The tricky part of Cather's criticism, of Cather criticism, has always been to align many of Cather's other pre preoccupations with this central dyad. Specifically, why did Cather make so much of music, specifically opera? A straightforward biographical response might simply note her passion for music, her erotic fascination with the figure of the diva, the female opera singer, and might then ruminate on the imaginative plenitude that opera and performance offered to someone born into a straightened 19th century small town culture. 
And the moment where the opera company arrives in the town, of course, is an amazing and, and emotional moment, as we can see in some of Cather's writings about this small town, late 19th century uh, operatic world. And the connections of the railroads up to Chicago facilitate a, a, you know, a quite extraordinary circulation of performance and, and musical culture around what might have otherwise seemed quite remote settlements. It's here, I think, that we can see how wide-ranging and systematic the Cather project was what was. If we think of Cather as, as a, above all, a writer obsessed and fascinated by culture, culture, its beginning and end, its transmission, its commemoration as memory, then her fascination with opera becomes central. Opera, and to be more precise, perhaps, performance, performance, the lived experience of watching the singer, is central to Cather's reading of culture. Opera is performative and ephemeral, her representation of singing emphasizes its passionate transience, but the sheer weight of musical practice, training oneself over many years within the established structures of a discipline, also suggests permanence. And therefore, for Cather, the music teacher is almost as important as the performer herself, since the teacher represents the permanence of a culture, even as he teaches the performer to work towards the highly ephemeral world of performance. Again, that sounds complicated, but if you kind of read it back into the novels, you can see the points that I'm trying to get at. The music teacher's job is to transmit a culture, and there's, of course, enormous emphasis on this in Cather's work. This is why, Cather's teach this is why music teachers have such a special place in Cather's work. Think of Wunsch or Sebastian in Lucy Gayhart, and it's why, more generally, teachers are so important in Cather. One thinks of Gaston Cleric in My Antonia or St. Peter in The Professor's House. There are indeed probably more teachers in Cather's work than in the fiction of any comparable U.S. writer, which of course is again one of the reasons why Cather's work appeals to people who are teachers. Um, but again, if you kind of just track your mind over a lot of Cather novels and you just think about who you actually see in a Cather novel, what they do, what their occupation might be, what they are professionally committed to, how they work, you can see the recurrence of these um, these figures, and you can see how the narratives are kind of shaped around their activities in a very um, compelling way. This educational plot in Cather is closely tied to meditations on culture and how we transmit or transfer culture across generations. For a singer such as Thea, the performer voluntarily subjects herself to a kind of discipline within a highly stylized, deeply historical culture only to deploy that transmitted and permanent practice in performances marked by their sheer ephemeral transience. You know, and, and it can't really be overstated just how committed um, Cather was to her musical interests. That is one of the reasons why she chose to live in New York. And some people sort of suggest that you know, going to the opera two or three times a week in some ways is just a kind of a rich woman's... Um, um, you know, hobby, that it was just something that you kind of do when you have the time and money to be able to do that. I think that one of the things that Cather was doing there was to try and use uh, music and musical performance as ways of thinking through problems that had obsessed her throughout her life. So I see that, that those activities as hers almost as kind of furthering the work of her fiction. The musician trains for years, only to use that training in the brief illumination of nightly performance. And one might define opera in Cather as the disciplining of the body through the permanence of culture in order to transmit a kind of fierce natural energy. And that's one of the things that comes out in Cather's description of music, this idea of a kind of a romantic flowering. I'll give you an example of this. 
This is Thea's meditation at the end of the Song of the Lark, which interestingly might also might almost remind you of a moment, a famous moment in Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. Listen to this quotation. Not for nothing had she kept it so severely, kept it filled with such energy and fire. All that deep-rooted vitality flowered in her voice, her face, in her very fingertips. She felt like a tree bursting into bloom. So it has that kind of orgasmic, uh, energetic moment. And again, you might think of, 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 of the young woman and the tree in, in their eyes of watching God. A tree's blooming, of course, is transitory. Thea undertakes a journey into the permanence of musical culture only to achieve a temporary ecstasy. That's the, the dialectic, the dynamic that you see in Cather. You can see how the erotic and the romantic, with a capital R, suggestions of flowering, are in Cather's work immediately enmeshed in larger patterns that shape how we think about cultures are being preserved. Hence the emphasis on keeping alongside bursting into bloom. Keeping is a very important Cather word, as is possession. But of course that ecstasy is then transmitted to the viewers and the listeners and the Moonstone, Moonstone townspeople who will remember her. So memory becomes a kind of compensation for inevitable and repeated cultural loss in this Cather schema. And again, you can see, if you just kind of make the movement out now from the text, you can see how Cather is very complexly both a romantic and a classical artist, that she works with both narratives of personal fulfillment and self-actualization in a very romantic, perhaps a very American romantic way, partly to do with the way in which landscape is being used, but also a classical artist in that her, her interest is in the preservation and transmission of ideal cultures. And that takes her back into uh, you know, very familiar arguments about how culture might be established, made permanent. One can see that for a, Cather, a writer like Cather, the mechanical reproduction of contemporary culture, notably film, threatened to destroy her own cultural model. Cather was suspicious of film, I think, because it offered a routinized mechanical reproduction, not the combined force of historical permanence and ephemeral performance prized by her artists. Cather made a tiny, tidy sum of money from the 1934 film version of A Lost Lady. I think it was $6,000? I'm looking at Andy. Something like that. Um, a mediocre production starring Barbara Stanwyck. But she resisted the movies, in contrast to figures such as Fitzgerald or Faulkner. The, 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 the film, if you ever get a chance to see it, does say at the beginning, Willa Cather's a lost lady. Um, it's a lamentable production, and you can see why she didn't like it greatly. But she did take the gold, um, which was the right thing to do, I think. The Nebraska essay of 1923 laid into the too many moving picture shows, which Cather linked to a depleted, overly consumerized culture. And you can see that from a Cather point of view, movie time is simply banal. It is fixed. It is repetitive. One plays the old story in the same form again and again. Cather, of course, had noted in one of her own comments on how stories work that there were only two, one or two or three stories in the world. But within her own fiction, the trick was to frame this historical rootedness and this sense of permanence and repetition within something temporary and thrillingly momentary the singer's performance. Performance, that is, is central because it reminds us of the evanescent nature of human experience while grounding itself in the permanence of classical training. Now, if you are obsessed by the ideal of a permanent culture but haunted by a sense of cultural loss while being thrilled by the ecstasy of momentary performance, 
it's likely that you will have some very, very strange ideas about historical time. And Cather did indeed have very odd conceptions of chronology, and her novels embody the new timescale she used to shape her radical historical vision. In general, she bent, cut, twisted, expanded, and slowed down historical time, which is why the novels have their very distinctive and I think very experimental rhythms, the jump cuts, the elongations of time, the sudden memories, the flash forwards, and so forth. If you remember that famous comment that she made about 1922, it actually dates from the 1930s, where she looks back at 1922, the world broke in, 19, uh, in two in 1922, she writes, or thereabouts. But listen to the second part of the sentence, which people often don't then quote, and the persons and prejudices recalled in these sketches slid back into yesterday's 7,000 years. There's an extraordinarily strange kind of conception of time. The world broke in two in 1922, and then yesterday became 7,000 years. And you can see that the changes in temporality there are very, very, very strange indeed in terms of how moments are being focused and time is also being expanded and yesterday is becoming 7,000 years. If you sense that the culture that you are born into might not last, and if your imagination is captivated by scenes of pre-European civilization, the Pueblos, or colonial era Quebec, Shadows on the Rock, you are likely to push at the limits of what narrative sequencing can do. And that's that, why that important... That, that, that term is important in Cather, narrative, not novel, that sense of sequence and how you play with sequence, which is very important in the formalism of her stories. Um, da, 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 da. You are likely to push at the limits of what narrative sequence might achieve. Hence the sudden cuts and historical reorientations in her work or what might seem to be an almost fetishistic detailing of the minutiae of lives lived long ago. What many passages in these novels, what one might think of the domestic scenes between Cecile and her father in Shadows on the Rock, are asking us to think about is the final meaning of cultural significance. Shadows is a book where little happens, but the trivial is invested with massive importance. One can see the gamble that Cather has taken to show how ordinariness and the quotidian might gain a certain weight when placed in a culture of, in, of historical impact. Now, I would link this interest in cultural loss to the anthropological and ethnographic drive of her imagination. Ethnography, literally people writing. Although recent Cather criticism has done a good job at tracing the southwestern roots of her interest in what can be seen as a kind of fictional fieldwork, we can now see that Cather's overall career had marked parallels with classic cultural anthropology. Her career reached its apogee, at exactly the same moment that ethnography achieved its own intellectual breakthrough in works such as Bronislav Malinowski's Argonauts of the Western Pacific, 1922, another book that's often brought into arguments about the significance of the year 1922. Cather is the most ethnographic of American writers in her attention to the field, her exploration of a diversity of cultures, her interest in what James Clifford calls dwelling in culture, and this is one reason, I think, why non-Americans find her work so interesting. The books feel like keys to another way of life, replete with their records of weather patterns, the attentiveness to ritual and ceremony, the interest in linguistic difference and translation that runs from the Euro European tongues of the pioneer novels through to the southern idiolects of Sapphira. Her sense of the felt textures of ordinary life is thoroughly anthropological, one can read a novel such as Shadows for its insight into cooking and medicine in 17th century Quebec. In truth, the novel should really be called Cooking and Medicine in 17th century Quebec. 
It's, re it's remorseless, the kind of attentiveness that you see in that novel. And second, of course, the ethnographic imagination is by its very nature pluralistic and diverse, though with limits. For some readers, notably Walter Ben Michaels in a famous study, Our America, again a classic attack on Cather from the mid-1990s, that diversity is a sham since various others, typically black or Native American or Jewish, as in much American writing, modernist writing of the 1920s, they are simply brought forward to confirm and affirm the identity, the identity of our, that is white and nativist, America. Now, that's a complicated argument, but I do have an ethnographic reply to Michaels, which I'm now going to unfold during the rest of this talk, which I hope will last around 10 to 15 minutes. She is an ethnographic writer in that she understood very quickly, and as a modernist, the impact that the new disciplines of anthropology and archaeology would have on the novelistic imagination. Like many modernists, Cather had her moment of anthropological decentering as she shifted her historical lens to take account of other non-Western cultures. In Cather's case, this came with the famous trip to Arizona in 1912, a moment of psychological transformation, as biographer Sharon O'Brien has argued, but a moment that also triggered a shift in Cather's sense of American temporality. From now on, alongside the European classical heritage, to met alongside the, the European classical heritage, Cather had a continental American heritage, albeit, of course, read in a highly instrumental and partial way, the way in which she uses the Pueblos, the Cliff Dweller settlements, and so on. And this was to provide the matrix for her finest meditation on the interplay between permanence and transmission, Tom Outland's story. Cather's books become what we might call works of anthropology. This is the word that I've... Um, given in the title, a kind of combination of entropy and anthropology. They have the ethnographic impulse I identified earlier, but the writing of a culture is now devoted to the entropy, the winding down of that culture and its imminent uh, extinction. Now, many classic works, 20th century classical works of anthropology were, anthropo were anthropological as well. Malinowski's Argonauts, for instance, or Levi-Strauss's superb Triste Tropique, which I've also put on the list, one of my favorite books. We can see how Cather shares these writers' interest in cultural disappearances, but she turns the fascination inwards, this is the important moment, towards domestic anthropology of a succession of vanished Americas, the colonial Spanish America lost to Anglo-America after the Mexican War, death comes for the Archbishop, the French America lost to the British, shadows on the rock, the pioneer West lost to standardization and banal conformism, pioneer Nebraska, the defeated confederacy of Cather's southern ancestors, Sapphire and the slave girl, the cliff dweller settlements, the professor's house, death comes for the Archbishop, the enchanted bluff. So you can see that all of these worlds, in a sense, have gone. So you're surrounded by loss, as I say, not just a kind of personal or biographical sense of loss, though that was very immediately compelling for Cather in terms of her own life story, but in terms of how she read the culture's history and the history of the culture, seeing it as a series of kind of moments of extinction. This is very important. Some of these losses were political, alluded to or obliquely mentioned in Cather's work, such as her referencing of Kit Carson, the agent of progress, in inverted commas, in Death Comes for the Archbishop, but they were also often environmental vanishings, born from geographical isolation, extreme weather, demographic shifts. Lucy Gayhart, the beginning of O Pioneers, the sense of the fragility of the towns in which Cather had, had grown up. 
Michaels, Walter Ben Michaels, castigated Cather for her use of the vanishing American, the Indian. One reply would be that Cather was unusually interested in a variety of vanishings, not just that of native cultures. For Cather, indeed, most cultures are vanishing cultures. Tom Outland's story is, for me, the heart of Cather's achievement, the moment when so many of her ideas cross and intersect, and where she finds a language that can hold together the, her divergent conceptualizations of what culture might mean. In its fabulous structure, Lost Civilization, A Boy's Adventure Tale, we can see how Cather's reading of cultures in terms of transmission and permanence led her finally to construct a story about American origins and endings. The idea of newness and of beginnings, how a life might begin, how a culture might begin, had been powerfully present in O Pioneers and My Antoneer, of course. In Tom Outland's story, we see both the beginning and the end of a culture, and we see how Cather's anthropology transformed the fundamental structures of narrative itself. Therapists are trained to pay particular attention to changes in narrative sequence, particularly the break in time or viewpoint. And you can read Tom Outland's story in that way. Tom Outland's story reads like a dream about a culture demanding a form of cultural therapy. It is a dream about civilization, about how it begins, how it is rooted in environment, how it might pass away and be commemorated, how it will eventually become not a culture, but a story about a culture. Outland and his friends achieve a form of anthropological dwelling on the mesa, and that's very brilliantly caught in the story, just as the cliff, cliff dwellers, and again, note Cather's use of this ethnographic term, had done. Like the cliff dwellers, they find that permanence is in fact temporary, as in her other cultural narratives, how to possess and how to hand on a culture becomes vital. There is one sentence in the story where Cather simply writes, it was possession, just kind of pushes it out right into the front, forefront of the narrative, foregrounding these uh, themes and these motifs that I've been describing. As in Lucy Gayhart and My Antonia, the interplay between male and female characters insistently but subtly reminds us that cultural transmission in Cather is a highly gendered process. Outland, typically, is the male memory fetishist, commemorating the vanished or marginalized female protagonist. And again, you see the twinning effect. Jim and Antonia, Harry Gordon and Lucy, Tom and Mother Eve, the keeper and the kept, the male and the female, the memory and the death. Memory intercedes, providing a form of compensation or imaginative plenitude for the losses we have witnessed. Typically, again, a typically kind of Cather moment. Nevertheless, the, and you, again, you see that at the beginning of my Antonia's say very directly. Nevertheless, the processes of obliteration, and the Cather term for that, oblivion, continue. Tom will die in the war. Survivors such as Harry and Jim return stoically to live lives that are hollowed out and ever enervated, a living oblivion. The best for Harry Gordon in Lucy Gayhart is Cather's final brutal and bitter inversion of a Norman Rockwell piety. And it's almost spat out, I think, at the end of that, of that um, uh, book. What was a man's hometown anyway, but the place where he had had disappointments and learned to bear them. As the anthropologist Marshall Salins has written, every culture, he says, is a gamble played with nature. Every culture is a gamble played with nature. It depends on a supportive environment, and it risks collapse if such environmental conditions are not in place, events which many very serious people now believe are imminent within our own epoch. This is why Cather's reading and rendering of environment are so important, not so much because of her interest in environment per se, but because environment might herald cultural collapse, a truly terrifying prospect in the Catherian scheme of things. 
Enchanted Bluff, we remember, envisages a cultural collapse precipitated by a storm. Unable to get back to sanctuary, the tribe is decimated by another tribe. And here's the quotation that I want to read to you at, at length. We're nearly finished now, don't worry. There's a big red rock, she writes, that goes right up out of the sand for about 900 feet. This is a story, tip story. There's a young boy telling the story. The country's flat all around it, and this here rock goes up all by itself like a monument. They call it the Enchanted Bluff down there because no white man has ever been on top of it. The sides are smooth rock and straight up like a wall. The Indians say that hundreds of years ago, before the Spaniards came, there was a village away up there in the air. The tribe that lived there had some sort of steps made out of wood and bark, hung down over the face of the bluff, and the braves went down to hunt and carried water up in big jars swung on their backs. They kept a big supply of water and dried meat up there and never went down except to hunt. They were a peaceful tribe that made cloth and pottery, and they went up there to get out of the wars. You see, they could pick off any war party that tried to get up their little steps. The Indians say they were a handsome people, and they had some sort of queer religion. Uncle Bill thinks they were cliff dwellers who had got into trouble and left home. They weren't fighters anyway. Anyhow, one time the Braves got, were down hunting, and an awful storm came up, a kind of water spout. And when they got back to their rock, they found their little staircase had been all broken to pieces, and only a few steps were left hanging away up there in the air. While they were camped at the foot of the rock, wondering what to do, a war party from the north came along and massacred them to a man, with all the old folks and women looking on from the rock. Then the war party went on south and left the village to get down the best way they could. Of course, they would never get down. They never got down. They starved to death up there, and when the war party came back on their way north, they could hear the children crying from the edge of the bluff where they had crawled out, but they didn't see a sign of a grown Indian, and nobody has been up, ever been up there since. Classic story, you might say, of vanishing Americans. And it conforms, perhaps, to that, well, pretty explicitly, to that pattern whereby um, the vanishing American is then the vanishing American, the vanishing Indian, returns symbolically um, in narrative to provide all sorts of um, motifs, all sorts of symbolic meanings to the victors, perhaps. A vision of vanishing Americans, certainly. The turn of native heritage into a symbolic narrative of plenitude and belonging. Surely this is it. The transformation of their culture into our narrative. Again, I think it would be hard to deny that this is part of the storytelling alchemy in operation in 1909. The irony, though, the Cather irony, is that we ourselves might eventually be on the enchanted bluff, not quite literally, but in an analogous sense or state of impermanence. Many of her environments have the precariousness and the sense of transience implicit in Salin's commentary, the fragility of the prairie towns, the demographic collapse that seems to take place at the end of Lucy Gayhart, where there are no clear inheritors to take the place of the dead generation of Sebastian Clement, Harry Gordon, and Lucy herself. You see the, gra the mounds in the graveyard. There is the sentence, complete oblivion, no grandchildren, and so forth. Where, 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 is, the, where is the next generation going to come from? We might say that there is something very democratic, pan-cultural, or even global, about Cather's sense of cultural vanishings. Even the French, even the French, probably for Cather, the most cultured of us all, will fail to escape. And for Cather, unlike many members of Congress, that was a painful realization. At the end of Death Comes for the Archbishop, Latour builds a Midi-style cathedral in the southwest, if you remember. In shadows, the rock of Quebec City looms still. 
But French Canada has passed, as it were, passed away, while the Catholic Southwest of those local syncretistic faith communities celebrated in the archbishop no longer has power. Tellingly, at the very end of her life, Cather was working, I think outrageously and fittingly, on a book about the medieval Avignon of the papal schism, the papal schism that would leave the great cathedral and the great sort of edifice of, of, of central Avignon behind. This is why finally Cather, why finally French Canada and France, or the transplanted France of Latour's Midi Cathedral, meant so much to Cather. They represented environmental, cultural monumentalism, all that gray stone, all that rootedness. But they also embodied impermanence and collapse in their most poignant forms, the passing away of French America, the sudden emergence and disappearance of Avignon's schismatic papacy within the space of three generations. Cather, who was a lifelong Francophile, probably knew of dozens of potential French tales that might have provided the materials for her narratives. But tellingly, she chose to cite her stories in Quebec and Avignon, quintessences of cultures that that seemed permanent, then vanished, and then were transmitted as cultural memories and examples through her own imaginings. Thank you.